Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. The following is a Podcast One and Reels channel presentation. This program contains graphic violence and sexual situations. Viewer discretion is advised. A beautiful young medical student is missing. As a family, it was devastating. This is your baby sister who you were so proud of. The wife of one of the heirs to a very rich and powerful New York City real estate empire. The Durst family was arguably one of the five most powerful families in New York. Can I help you? Yes, I'm here to report my wife missing. But instead of making front page news, the story is buried. The case turns cold and her life is forgotten. Kathy told all of us, if anything ever happens to me, look to Bob. Bob did it. Don't let him get away with it. This was a cold case for almost 20 years, but it came roaring back into the headlines because truth was stranger than fiction. Her husband's close friend and confidant, a Hollywood writer, is brutally murdered, possibly for knowing too much. The next victim is a loner-turned-friend who ends up in pieces floating in the bay of Galveston, Texas. He is your modern-day Hannibal Lecter. He's rich. He could be anyone. He could be anywhere. He's a frightening individual. After a shocking verdict, Hollywood comes knocking when the press catapults this bizarre murderer into the public eye. And a stunning confession is unknowingly made on camera. What did I do? Killed them all. <laughs> Meet Robert Durst, affluent, resentful son, and a killer hiding in plain view. Until murder made him famous. Acquitted for one murder, suspected of another, and rumored to be responsible for the disappearance of his wife. Robert Durst is a figure in which the media is obsessed. Numerous books and countless articles detail the horrifying crimes that he's tied to. A feature film dramatized the story for theatergoers. One of the film's biggest fans, Robert Durst himself, who personally invited the filmmakers to make a documentary series about him. In it, Durst seemingly makes an explosive confession that shocks the country. In the last episode of The Jinx on HBO, Robert Durst didn't even know that his microphone was on. So it picked up him saying, what the hell did I do? Killed them all, of course. The Jinx broke ratings records and convinced audiences that Durst was guilty and thus enraptured the public once again. To truly understand this bizarre series of events, we must go back to when Robert Durst experiences a childhood tragedy at the tender age of seven. November 1950. Bernice Durst, age 32, lies dead outside her upscale home. She either jumped or she fell, and she hit the driveway head first, and she died. He apparently had seen it. He was there. He was a witness to it. When he was just seven years old, Robert Durst saw his mother die. And the trauma of that had a lasting effect on the rest of his life. As a child, Robert sees a counselor for rage issues. And how did that make you feel, Robert? They determined after just a couple of sessions that, you know, he was suffering some severe psychological problems. Robert. 
the kind of witch where if you don't address it, it will come back when you're an adult. The diagnosis from Robert's therapist is alarming. Paranoid schizophrenic, sociopathic, this was all in a 10-year-old's evaluation. By 1971, Robert is working for his family's company when he meets Kathy McCormick, age 19. Oh, um, you must be your friends. Sorry. (laughs) Though 10 years older than Kathy, there's an immediate attraction. Kathy lived in a Durstone building when she moved to Manhattan, and that's how they met. Call me Bobby. Bobby. Call me Kathy. (laughs) Here you have two very different people. On one hand, you have Kathy McCormick, and she's this spunky girl from a working-class family in Long Island. Do you always look this this pretty? (laughs) And then on the other hand, you have Robert Durst, who some people say he's very dark. Do you feel safe here? But he could also be really charming. And even though they were so different, the two of them fell in love. You should come live here with me. Crazy. Their first year of their relationship first started off with, you know, two people heads over heels in love with each other. They wanted to be hippies and live up in Vermont and do the hippie thing, and there was no issues with money or anything like that, and they could be happy in the woods. We'd get a little cabin, maybe a boat. How about a puppy? I want a puppy. He was Prince Charming. She was Cinderella. She was very naive to all of that uh, prosperity that uh, that relationship brought. But Seymour Durst, Robert's father, wants him to return to New York to help run the family business. I need to know that the company is going to be taken care of, you by you. That's your business, Dad. We just wanted to have his rich, hippie lifestyle, beautiful wife, and a joint every day. That seemed to be his focus. I have my own ideas. I don't know if I want to run your business. I don't plan to keep continuing to pay for you to live in the woods. Grow up. Upon returning to New York, Robert and Kathy have their entire futures ahead of them. But what they envision is very different. He was very clear. If Kathy married him, they weren't going to have kids together. I know I wouldn't be a good father. No kids. Period. According to Robert, Kathy agrees to this, and they marry in a small ceremony in April 1973. As their married life begins, Robert gets to know Kathy's family, but he shows little interest in his new relatives. Kathy Durst's friends used to describe him as sullen and uppity. I only met Robert once. He didn't even really say hello, welcome to my house. He just grunted, mm-hmm. you know, like a dog. My dog is nicer. Robert spends his time collecting rent from Durst tenants in some of the more seedy parts of New York. They would be renting to brothels, porn shops. Hey, baby, looking for a good time? Yeah. <laughs> While Kathy spends her time studying for medical school. But in 1976... Kathy accidentally gets pregnant. I want to keep the baby. Absolutely not. Robert! No! I told you from the beginning I didn't want to have children. You agreed. And so I married you. I gave you this great life, and now you want to change the rules. He demanded that she get an abortion. Don't make me do this. Fine. Okay, then you can say goodbye to our marriage and my money. 
I would consider that Kathy turned a corner in her own life, emotionally and mentally. The fact that Robert would force Kathy to have an abortion confirmed her worst fears about him. This was a guy who didn't care about what she wanted or any of her hopes and dreams. It was all about Robert. Mrs. Durst, could you come with me, please? Robert and Kathy's marriage deteriorates over the years and frequently results in violence. He was physically abusive to Kathy Durst. There are lots of witness accounts on that. Robert doesn't even attempt to hide the abuse from Kathy's own family. The McCormick family would typically have a Christmas event at Mom's house, and Kathy came with Bob to one of these parties in the late 70s. Kathy, we're going to leave. No, I want to stay. I'm going to go start the car. So, sis, how's medical school going? Good. Very quickly. He came back, almost like a mad dash, like a rush. I said we're late. And I'm sitting there with a beer in my hand, and it was just as quickly as I'm telling you this story, they were already to the door and going out. I didn't react quickly, but there was a lot of people who said, why didn't you get up and beat him up? I go, you don't understand. It happened so sudden, unexpected. Who goes over to someone, pulls them by the hair to get them to leave? And by all accounts, the abuse just got worse and worse. Despite this, Kathy stays with Robert. People get stuck. And I think she hoped that she was going to work it out, that somehow she was going to change him. The only person who seems to understand Robert is Susan Berman, a friend from his college days at UCLA. She was Bobby's confidant. She was Bobby's best friend. In 1981... Robert throws Susan a party to celebrate the release of her memoir. Susan Berman grew up a mob princess, and in many ways, she had a lot of things in common with Robert Durst. They had these larger-than-life fathers. Their mothers died under mysterious circumstances at an early age. It was like these tragedies kind of connected the two. Do you ever wonder about those two? Bobby and Susan? They're strictly platonic children. Like Susan always says, Bobby's the older brother that she never had. They still have, like, a real loyalty to each other, you know? While Kathy doesn't have to worry about a romantic relationship between Robert and Susan, affairs between her husband and other women are another story. Robert's current fling is with Prudence Farrow, the sister of actress Mia Farrow. Prudence Farrow was the inspiration for the Beatles' song, Dear Prudence. Prudence actually called and told Kathy that Robert Durst and her were going to be an item. Kathy, Bobby's with me now. Give him up. And it really did torture Kathy that this happened. How do you think it makes me feel to have dear Prudence call me and tell me that you're hers? How many times have you had her this week? Have you had her in our house? Did you have her in our house in our bed? How many women do you have, huh, Robert? Shut up, Kathy! You've got to be kidding me. Look at you. Look at what you've become, huh? You make me sick. I make you sick. I make you sick. Yes, you do. I'll show you sick. 
Kathy's friends implore her to end her marriage to Robert. She would call me with these lengthy phone conversations all about Bob's abuse. And, you know, I basically said, get the heck out of Dodge. You don't need to be there. He sounds nuts. For Kathy Durst, staying with her husband will prove to be deadly. And two more people close to Robert Durst will come to violent ends. You make After years of abuse and infidelity, the marriage of Robert and Kathy Durst has hit rock bottom. By this point, the marriage between Robert and Kathy is basically over. And on January 31st, 1982, Kathy goes to a party at her friend Gilberta's house. And it's the last time she's seen alive. It turned out to be this party where there was drugs and drinking and she does some cocaine. You need a drink. He wants me to come home. Come on. Let's do some more, yeah? You gotta leave him, Kathy. You just go home and tell him you get in a divorce. Gilbert is prodding her on to go back to Bobby and confront them and finalize his divorce, get it, and get out of that house. According to Gilberta, Robert keeps calling Kathy and telling her to come home. He wants me home. She was drinking, she did drugs, and she's angry. I'm going to do it. Tonight I'm going to let him know it's over. Good for you. If anything happens to me, you know it's Bobby. And so Kathy goes home and she's just raring to go. According to Robert Durst, on the night that Kathy disappeared, they'd had an argument. He says that she wanted to go back to her Manhattan apartment, but she'd been drinking, so he didn't want her to drive. He claims that he dropped her off at the train station instead. You sure you want to go back into the city tonight? It's late. Yes, I'm sure. You've had too much to drink. Kathy, please. The next morning, the dean of Kathy's college receives a puzzling phone call. Yes? I have a call for you, sir. Kathy Durst didn't show up for school. And a woman, saying she was Kathy Durst, called the dean. Hi, this is uh, Kathy Durst. I'm a student at this school. I'm sick in my stomach, so I won't be in today. Here's the first real mystery about the disappearance. If this wasn't Kathy who called, who was on the phone? You get better now, Mrs. Durst. Thank you. There was this long-held belief, though, that it was Susan Berman who made that call. She was Bobby's confidant. She was Bobby's best friend. If Susan made that call, was Susan aware that Bobby had killed Kathy? And did she help him cover it up? Days later, Kathy is nowhere to be found. No one has seen or heard from her. Five days after her disappearance, Robert finally files a missing persons report. Can I help you? Yes, I'm here to report my wife missing. Have a seat. Your name? Robert Durst. Occupation? I'm in real estate. 
Our father is Seymour Durst. Bobby was flashing a magazine and put his father on the cover. One of the five most powerful men in New York. So it's kind of, you know, you're dealing with a high-end family here. When did you last see your wife, sir? Five days ago. Bob walked into the 20th precinct to make the statement to the detectives. He was letting them know that I don't know what happened to Kathy. I had a guy come in to report his wife missing. He brought his dog with him. Can you believe that? I'm pretty sure the wife just ran off, but he went in five days to report. At first, the NYPD doesn't take much action with this case. Without a body, the police don't feel a lot of pressure to investigate aggressively. Typically with cases like this, when, a, when one spouse comes in and reports another spouse missing, it's not necessarily a missing person. In the newspaper, Robert offers $100,000 for any leads about his missing wife. To deal with the growing media interest in the story, Robert turns to his good friend, Susan Berman. She acted as his liaison between the media and him. So he didn't do any interviews. She fielded all the talks with the media. Thank you. Kathy's friends, however, suspect Robert knows more about Kathy's disappearance than he has told authorities. Kathy's friends are really frustrated because they don't believe that police are taking her disappearance seriously. So they start their own investigation and they start going through Robert Durst's trash. It's midnight. Let's go dig up his garbage. In their mind, Bobby's doing things that clearly aren't usual for someone who should be concerned about his missing wife. Among their findings are some alarming items. And I could see he was throwing all her stuff out. Five weeks after she disappeared. Personal items. Unopened mail. If you thought your wife was having an affair and running off or she was coming back, if you knew you hadn't murdered her, you wouldn't be tossing out this stuff. I found a note that was an itinerary, and it was labeled itinerary. Town dump, bridge, dig, boat, shovel. It's like how to get rid of something. Like a body. Likewise, Kathy's family is frustrated and confused and reach out to Robert's father, Seymour, who agrees to a meeting. Can't you help us, Mr. Durst? And we were asking him, practically begging him for support. And all we got back was, I don't know nothing. Kind of a patronizing, unemotional response. Seymour, what if this was your family? We need your help, please. Kathy is my family, and I can't help you. Please. This meeting is over. Find your own way out. The daughter-in-law of a billionaire in New York City that had all the resources in the world and literally squashed it. Robert denies having anything to do with Kathy's disappearance. Then he does the inexplicable. Robert has been offering a reward of $100,000 for Kathy's return, but then he reduces it to $15,000. In 1990, eight years after she first disappeared, Robert finalizes his divorce from Kathy, claiming spousal abandonment. Fast forward to 1999. Robert Durst's younger brother, Douglas, now controls the family's $4 billion real estate company, while the passed over and now estranged Robert gets by on a $3 million yearly allowance. His younger brother got everything, and Robert felt very betrayed by his father because of that. 
Kathy's disappearance has faded from the public eye. But in 1999, New York State Police investigator Joe Becerra gets a tip about her case. This is Becerra. And he spends about a year looking into it. He gets the old NYPD files. He speaks with the original detective. And he's becoming convinced that there's more to this story than others had believed back in the early 1980s. Joe Becerra takes the case to the Westchester County District Attorney, who at the time was Janine Pirro. This news reaches the ears of the public and Robert Durst. <laughs> Kathy's friends urge investigators to reach out to Robert's friend and confidant, Susan Berman. Susan is now living in Beverly Hills, California, struggling to sell screenplays and is in financial straits. By the year 2000, Susan Berman is struggling financially, so she reaches out to her old friend, Bobby Durst. She needed money, and Susan was a little disgruntled with Bobby because she couldn't find him. Hey, Bobby, it's Susan. I was really disappointed I didn't hear from you last week. You know, what's going on? I'm really worried about you. All this Kathy stuff must have you really pulling your hair out. You should come out and visit me. We could talk about things. Now call me back. Robert Durst responds to Susan Berman's pleas for money and sends her two separate checks for 25000 each. As he writes out her address, he mistakenly misspells Beverly Hills, an error that will come back to haunt him years later. The police in Westchester County were reopening the missing person case into Kathy Durst. They were looking to interview Susan Berman. Susan gets her second check in December of 2000. And around that same time, she gets a call from her old friend, Kim Lankford, who had dated Robert Durst and was also known as being an actress on the show Knott's Landing. According to Kim, Susan told her that she had some explosive information. I'm really swamped at the moment. I'm working on something big. It's going to blow the sheets off of everything. No, trust me, something big is going to happen. But This news will never be known. Sometime between the night of December 22nd and the morning of December 23rd, Susan receives a visitor who she lets into her home. Come on in. I'm so glad you came. Sorry about the mess. It's not it will be the last thing she ever does. Another death in Robert Durst's wake has occurred, but this time, there is a body. Murder Made Me Famous will be back after a word from our sponsors. This program contains graphic violence and sexual situations. Viewer discretion is advised. December 2000. Susan Berman, friend of controversial real estate heir Robert Durst, receives a visitor. In. People who knew Susan Berman said that she would never open her door to a stranger. You're always making such a mess. <laughs> For roughly 36 hours, Susan's body laid in the home while her dogs tracked through her blood. 
On December 24th, police investigate a complaint by neighbors about Susan Berman's dogs running around and barking. When they arrive, they find an open door and Susan Berman's lifeless body. When police arrived, they found bloody paw prints all over her hardwood floors. She appears to have been executed mob style. Meanwhile, the Beverly Hills Police Department receives a crudely written note with the word cadaver written on it. It also has Susan's Beverly Hills address on it, but the word Beverly is misspelled with an extra E. The key thing with the cadaver letter is it was postmarked the day before her body was found. So no one knew she had been killed except for the killer. Susan's one-time line of employment was unofficial press secretary for Robert Durst, a man now under investigation again for the mysterious disappearance of his first wife. That now sent his case into a whole other stratosphere. Susan's family had ties to organized crime, so some people thought that her murder had something to do with the mob. But anybody who worked with her dad would have been in their 80s by that time. Detectives in New York had planned to contact Susan Berman to question her about Kathy Durst's disappearance, but received a shock when they finally reached out. This woman you want to talk to? Yeah, she's dead. Authorities want to know where Robert Durst was when his friend Susan was killed. According to his attorney, Robert has an airtight alibi. Robert Durst had homes all over the country, including one in San Francisco. And on the day that Susan Berman's body was found, he was on a flight from San Francisco to New York. Which gave him ample time to hightail it back up to San Francisco, take care of things. She told her cousin and another friend that Bobby was going to come and see her at Christmas. Hey. He wanted to shut her up because Susan knew too much. Durst may not have told her outright that he killed Kathy, but Susan was the closest person to Bobby Durst at the time Kathy Durst disappeared. If anybody knew anything, it would have been Susan. I believe Robert Durst killed Susan because he believed that Susan was going to let the cat out of the bag. No, he killed Susan. That was a no-brainer. She knew too much. He was mopping up all the loose ends. To escape the inquiries of reporters and detectives about reopening the investigation into Kathy's disappearance and now Susan's death, Robert has gone off the grid. One of his refuges of choice is Galveston, Texas. Galveston's known for embracing the wanderers of the world, and it is a good place to get lost. Robert inquires about an apartment in a low-rent area of Galveston. But he doesn't plan on living there as Robert Durst. This story was already bizarre, but now it got really crazy. I work for a woman by the name of Dorothy Siner. She's a deaf mute and can only communicate by notes. She'd like to rent the apartment and can come by tomorrow with a money order for six months' rent. I look forward to meeting Mrs. Siner. She feels likewise. It was a disguise, and not a very good one, was it? 
Here's this guy who's suspected of two murders, and he dresses up as a woman and goes into hiding. A crossdresser would die before they looked like Robert Durst. Bob was living as a deaf mute woman was just his way of running away from truth. Because I think truth is at the heart of this entire story. By going to Galveston, Texas, Bob was denying the truth of his culpability and responsibility to what had already transpired, including Susan Berman. Robert strikes up a friendship with neighbor Morris Black, a relationship that will prove to be deadly. Why, you think you're Morris quickly discovers that Robert is not all that he seems. Morris was cranky, crazy, would just try to pick a fight with anyone. I was knocking old man over and somehow it's my fault. Morris Black was the type of person who got into arguments with people. Morris Black, according to the background that I found, was a very elusive individual. He would move in one area and then be off the grid and move to another area and stay off the grid. Robert Durst and Morris Black. Talk about the ultimate odd couple. So, so what's the deal? This whole woman thing. I had to get away from being who I was and become someone else. Haven't you ever wanted to just get away, Morris? Yeah, I've done it before myself. Not as a, a woman, man, but somebody else. You'd make a beautiful woman, Morris. This bizarre friendship continues until a fateful night in September 2001. According to Robert Durst, he came back to his apartment one day and Morris Black was in his apartment and wouldn't leave and threatened him in some way. What are you doing here, Morris? Give me the gun, Morris! Durst claimed that he had to kill Morris Black in self-defense. Robert has fled from the media attention in New York. In his mind, the only way to avoid being connected to the crime is to do the unthinkable. I'm sorry, Bill. After hacking up Morris Black's body, Robert Durst puts the pieces in separate trash bags. Then, Robert takes the severed parts of Morris Black's body and dumps them into the bay. But unbeknownst to Robert Durst, the dark waters of Galveston Bay will soon reveal his monstrous act. Galveston, Texas, September 2001. 
A few hours after Robert Durst has disposed of the body parts of neighbor Morris Black, a father-son fishing trip quickly turns into the stuff of nightmares. The boy sees something bobbing in the water. It kind of looks like a dead pig. And his father recognizes it as a human torso. More specifically, it was the torso of Morris Black. Come on, let's go. Police soon discover floating trash bags that contain the rest of Morris Black's dismembered body. Or at least most of it. The one thing that Galveston police never find is Morris Black's severed head. And without the head, all you have is a dead, cut-up body. You don't know if it died of a heart attack. They're thinking that the reason the head wasn't found is because he was shot in the head. The body parts that are found seem to have been removed with almost surgical precision. The police told me that whoever dismembered Morris Black knew how to carve up a body. Found with the body parts are newspapers whose addresses lead the police back to Morris Black's residence. They question Black's neighbors, but they can't locate the elderly lady who lives next door. What they do discover are tantalizing clues in the garbage. Oh, we got a bloody sock, 22 caliber handgun. They actually found a prescription for glasses. The name Robert Durst on it. And that's what made the connection to Robert Durst as being actually Dorothy Siner. The Galveston police find and arrest Robert Durst, but they don't know who he is yet. That two other police jurisdictions are looking for him, or why. They put him in jail and set a hefty bond. They had no idea that Robert Durst was a millionaire. So when he had his bail money wired to him, he paid his bail and he skipped town. It wasn't until he was gone when they finally learned who he really was. They were really surprised. When Robert misses his court hearing, a warrant is issued for his arrest. Robert is on the run for a few weeks. He eventually appears, now with a shaved head and shaved eyebrows in a Pennsylvania supermarket where he shoplifts Band-Aids and a sandwich. Cops search Robert after he was arrested for shoplifting a sandwich that cost between six and eight bucks, and they found that he had $500 cash on his person, and also in his car he had Morris Black's driver's license, two guns, and some weed. Robert is sent back to Galveston to stand trial. Unlike the cases of Kathy Durst and Susan Berman, Authorities have compelling evidence in the case of Morris Black. Evidence, however, is no match for Durst's legal team, which is headed up by Dick DeGarren. Robert has hired a high-profile lawyer named Dick DeGarren, who wears cowboy boots to court and has a famous roster of clients like David Koresh and Tom DeLay. He's a really good lawyer, but that doesn't come cheap. This powerful team of attorneys assert that their client is innocent and was acting in self-defense. It was ridiculous, given that he killed him, chopped him up, throws him in the ocean, and then runs. Plus, you can't find the head. They were great at coaching Robert Durst and preparing Robert Durst for the case. During the trial, the defense portrays Durst as running away from an unfair investigation a witch hunt led by New York DA Janine Pirro. They use humor to sway the jury. 
This is a guy who's been accused of killing and dismembering a man. And yet the jury is laughing when they're hearing the stories of his drag costume that he was wearing. Unbelievable. The defense also portrays Morris Black as mean, unpredictable, and dangerous. A nasty person who was hated by everyone who met him. Robert Durst claims that he accidentally killed the old man. And that's his word against a deceased person. And no one's going to know for sure because the head of the body is missing. I believe the head may contain a gunshot wound. If it's from the back of the head, that is not self-defense. Robert admits to dismembering the body, packing it into black garbage bags, and dumping them in Galveston Bay. Since Morris's head was never recovered, the prosecution can't disprove that Robert killed him in self-defense. Everybody thought this was an open and shut case, so no one was prepared for the verdict that the jury would come to. Jurors deliberate for days, but in the end, they unanimously find Robert not guilty. Find the defendant, Robert Durst, not guilty. They actually bought everything he said, hook, line, and sinker. I've covered a lot of jury trials. 95% of the time, the jury gets it right. And if they don't get it right, you have to really look into the reasons why. You know, sometimes they make sense. This one made absolutely no sense. In 2004... Durst pleads guilty to bond jumping and evidence tampering by chopping up Morris's body. He receives a sentence of five years, but serves less than one before he is paroled. After being paroled, Robert continues to make headlines. It's like Robert Durst was incapable of staying out of trouble. He walks into a drugstore one day and takes a leak at the counter. That's Bobby Durst. And I think he gets a kick out of it. He likes the shock value. And we all thought there was nothing more that Robert Durst could do that was crazier than that. But we were wrong. The shocking question of whether Robert Durst is a murderer will be answered by the least likely person imaginable. The media is captivated by the story of Robert Durst, the wealthy New York real estate icon, who was suspected of killing three people over a period of 20 years. Do you have anything to say at all? In 2010, the movie All Good Things is released. And in the film, Ryan Gosling and Kirsten Dunst play fictionalized versions of Robert and Kathy Durst. Flattered by the attention, Durst makes an astonishing decision. Robert Durst has been charged and acquitted with killing and dismembering his neighbor, Morris Black. He's under suspicion for the disappearance of his wife, Kathy, and for the murder of Susan Berman. You would think that anybody who's been through all of that would just want to lay low. But that's not Robert Durst. He reaches out to the one man he can think of to tell his side of the story. The guy who directed the fictionalized version of his life story. So he reaches out to Andrew Jarecki. The resulting project is the 2015 HBO documentary series, The Jinx. One of the series' most dramatic turns occurs when the filmmakers discover the envelope to a letter that Durst wrote to Susan Berman. The handwriting perfectly matches the cadaver note, which tipped off police to the location of Susan's body. There is also another stunning similarity. 
Beverly Hills was misspelled exactly like letters that Susan Berman had received herself from her friend Robert Durst. I was working at People magazine and I was working with Andrew Jarecki to promote the jinx. And he had told me that there was some big bombshell coming up. And people say that all the time. So I had no idea what that bombshell was going to be. In the final episode of The Jinx, the filmmakers confront Robert with the envelopes. He notes the similarities, but denies the writing is his. Clearly rattled, Robert goes into the bathroom with his microphone still on. Robert Durst doesn't know that his mic is still hot, and it picks up on him muttering to himself, what the hell did I do? Killed them all, of course. Nobody could believe that this man actually muttered something while he still had a mic on. That is classic Robert Durst. The last five minutes of the jinx was, to me, the most damning bit of information that basically lent itself to the fact that he's a serial killer. Audiences and those involved with the case aren't the only ones who are floored by the revelation. As the jinx is airing, Bobby's watching it. It's clearly not the program he thought he was getting involved in. Basically, they're making the case that he was involved in the murder of Susan Berman. So Bobby's now making plans to leave the country. What he didn't realize, though, is that the FBI had been watching him. The day before the final episode airs, police arrest Robert in New Orleans for suspicion of murder. But the FBI agent called me up that morning and he goes, Jimmy, Jimmy, we got him, we got him. And I'm like in disbelief. When police search Robert's room, they discover marijuana, guns, cash, his birth certificate, passport, and a fake ID. Cops find a latex mask with gray hair in his room, and they find maps to both Florida and Cuba. Charges of unlawfully carrying a gun prove to be sticky, and in the end, Robert pleads guilty to the gun charge and receives an 85-month prison sentence. The Jinx documentary ended up putting him in jail, or otherwise he'd be in Cuba right now, smoking his cigars, sitting on the beach. I'll never forget the tone of my mother's voice after I told her about Bob going to prison when she said to me, good. Investigators also suspect that Durst can be linked to at least three other murders. I've maintained for a long time that he's a serial killer. There were potentially three other victims. One in Vermont and two in Northern California. We may never, ever get answers to those cases. I believe Robert Durst has probably killed many more people. You're talking about a guy that knows how to dismember a body, knows how to cover it up. I think there's a lot more to the story. I'm just not sure we're ever going to get to it. I believe Robert Durst is going to be found to be one of our biggest serial killers of all time. The story of Robert Durst is still being written. And with all these twists and turns, it's anyone's guess what will happen next. Neither Susan, nor Kathy, nor Morris Black is ever coming back. This is a picture of, of Kathy, myself, Ginny, Carol. She was gorgeous. Yeah. Upon 30 years of pain and suffering and reflection, um, I've come to the conclusion that he's a sociopathic narcissist to the nth degree. He doesn't care for anybody but himself. I mean, there's no denying that he's killed and killed and killed at least three times. We just ask for justice. That's what we want. Pin it on him. Nail it on him. 
That concludes this episode of Murder Made Me Famous. Don't forget to go to Reels.com. That's R-E-E-L-Z.com for clips, extras, and more. And don't forget to subscribe on PodcastOne.com, the Podcast One app, and Apple Podcasts.